Okay. Welcome. Welcome back to the Consolation of Philosophy class from the Mythgard Academy. Or Boethius Week 2 here, going into Book 2 uh, of Boethius. Um, uh, please, I, I, I hope to hear from people. I, you know, as those of you who know who have been doing my classes for a while, I love interaction throughout. I can't always promise to keep up with every or respond to every single comment uh, that's going on, but I love to get input, and I have three input channels open. Um, four. Four input channels open here this evening. Uh, I've got, of course, as always, my question box uh, in, uh, in GoToWebinar in the Signum University Netmoot which, of course, is what we've been using for years. I also have my Twitch chat open, because uh, we're simulcasting on Twitch, and I have Twitter open. Uh, so just uh, send me a notification, uh, you know, send me a, send me a mention uh, on Twitter uh, with a question or comment on something that I'm doing, and I'll, I'll try to respond to you there. I'm not going to be able to interact with my video directly, because my phone's up there and I can't do all that much. But, we'll, I'll, but I got my Twitter open over here, so we'll try to, I'll try to get to you that way, too. So, uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, see, Kate Neville's finally figured me out. Kate is saying she just realized this past week that I've been growing the beard in preparation, uh, uh, for being properly philosophical. Um, I like that theory. You know, I'm not sure, Kate, uh, if that works out historically, does it? When did we announce the, that Boethius was going to make it? When did that election happen? Was it? It was probably after February, wasn't it? I'm not sure if I started growing the beard before that or not. I don't know, but it does, you know, add a little gravitas for the consolation of philosophy, right? Uh, <laughs> Kate says my muse warned me, so there we are. Hopefully, it wasn't one of those strumpet muses. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, Tom says it's only a matter of time for the wheel to turn, which, of course, Tom bodes ill for the future of the beard, right? As uh, the wheel, which has once turned, shall continue turning, no doubt, uh, as, of course, we learn uh, this evening. Um, but anyway, speaking of Tom, this is Tom Hillman just making a comment there. And, Tom, I wanted to thank you for your uh, your particular contributions. In fact, um, we're going to have a, a special feature. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Tom Hillman has been a longtime Mythgard Academy supporter and, uh, and attendee. I've always enjoyed having him here on the Mythgard Academy. He's been able to come to many of our uh, to many of our, of our events. I'm looking forward to seeing him at MythMood again in a few weeks. Uh, Tom's also a classicist and always has a lot of excellent contributions to make on things Latin and Greek. Um, and as this is the first time we've, we're ever doing something that is actually translated from Latin, uh, he's been a particularly big help. So I, 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 I we're doing a we're going to do a special feature. One of the things, of course, that we're missing out on because we're um, uh, because we're reading this in translation, is obviously there's a lot of things about uh, the original language uh, that we're missing. Uh, so I, I'm, 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 I am this week starting a feature which I am calling Lingering on the Latin from Tom Hillman. These are some observations from the original Latin that uh, Tom is making. Just a few things, um, but they're really cool. Just to kind of give you a little bit of a taste for some of the stuff that Boethius is doing uh, in the Latin. Uh, so this from, uh, from, from the beginning of book one, from that first uh, uh, song that he sings, you'll remember it. Uh, so, quid me felicem totiens yactastis amici, qui, qui, qui cecidit stabili non erat ille gradu, 
My friends, why did you so often think me happy? Any man who has fallen never stood securely. Uh, so that's that's uh, uh, Green's translation, of course. So Tom says, in addition to the similarity to Job, it's worth noting that these two lines evoke more than just the Christian tradition. The word here translated as happy is felikem, which does not mean happy in the emotional sense. That would be litum, right? So it's a different, you know, so like I'm feeling in a, in like a, you know, a, 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 well, I was about to say a jovial mood, but of course that has, that has uh, also a different meaning, of course, in a Latin context, uh, being the name of Jove or derived from the name of Jove. Oh, or Jupiter. Uh, but anyway, you know, so not just not just the emotional feeling of happiness, um, but happy in the older sense of fortunate or lucky. By evoking this kind of happiness, Boethius is harking back to a long-standing Greek concept at least as old as Herodotus a thousand years earlier. Call no man happy until he dies. Call him lucky. Um, and I would add, by the way, that of course, uh, it, it, this is also uh, a sense that the English... Uh, retains as well. Of course, we only ever use uh, happy anymore, generally. Um, I mean, almost any time you hear it used, of course, in the modern world, um, you hear it used in the in the litum sense, right? In the emotional sense. Um, but of course, the word happy, uh, and this is especially clear when you look at older usages, like if you go back to Middle English and look at how the word happy, or more importantly, hap, was used, um, uh, you know, the the noun hap, it means luck, fortune, chance, right? Like to, to have good hap, right? It means to be, to be lucky, to be fortunate, right? Things go your way. Um, so someone who is happy is fortunate in that old felicem sense uh, that, that, that Tom was talking about. Exactly, Marielle, the word hapless. Um, you think of how, uh, of how Tolkien uses that, right? You know, think of the, the grave of the hapless, right? Uh, Turin uh, and uh, Neonor are the hapless, right? Whose grave uh, are, is, is described that way. They're, they're the unfortunate, right? And I think we can all agree that they were unhappy uh, in that older sense. Um, uh, so yes, absolutely. Tolkien was certainly very aware, uh, very aware of that. Um, uh, so yeah, so happy literally means lucky and, uh, 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 translates the word, uh, the word lucky. Um, anyway, okay. And Tom adds also in the first line, uh, the verb is yaktastis, which is far stronger than did you think? It means, did you brag? So his question, why did you so often brag that I was happy, my friends, is much more reproachful in Latin than Green translated it. So a couple really neat observations about that that really important uh, pair of lines there uh, at the beginning. But wait, there's more. The idea, of course, Tom adds, that no matter who you are, everything can change in a moment, which Boethius has just said. Dum levibus male fida bonis fortuna fa- f- favoret. Pine caput tristis, merserat hora meum. Green translates these lines as the sad hour that has nearly drowned me came just at the time that faithless fortune favored me with her worthless gifts. The translation is correct, but Boethius does some cool stuff with the Latin. Fortune is not so much faithless as badly faithful, male fida. So you see the, the male fida right there in the middle of that first line, right? Um, male being an adverb modifying fida, right? Badly faithful. Fida is, uh, uh, is, is an adjective, right? Modifying fortuna, uh, as Tom's going to go on to explain. Um, so male, modifying fida, modifying fortuna, right? Um, okay, so, uh, uh, so 
Right. Fortune isn't isn't faithless. It doesn't doesn't just have no faith, right? But it's badly faithful, which hints more at fickleness than faithless does, right? Faithless does suggest something like maybe potentially something just kind of amoral, right? Uh, male fida sort of oh, it comes closer to suggesting, right, that faithfulness is still kind of there as a target. It just did she did very bad at it, right? Um, uh, which is which is which is a, a, a different and I think an interestingly different kind of indictment, right? Um, in both of these lines, we also see nouns and adjectives woven together in a meaningful way. Lewibus modifies bonis, and fida modifies fortuna in the first line, and in the second, meum modifies caput, and tristis modifies hora. The interweaving of the words, so you can see how with the color coding, um, you can see how... Uh, how these things are interwoven. This is, of course, because Latin is an inflected language. See, and this is one of the examples of what I was talking about in my poetry rant before about translating poetry, right? This is what I mean when I say you can't translate Latin poetry into English. It can't be done because English is fundamentally different. It just works differently than Latin does, right? And this is a classic example of how. Um, uh, the, 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 the Latin is an inflected language. This means that the positioning of the words doesn't affect the meaning, right? Um, which adjectives go with which nouns, for instance, is something that's determined by the endings of the, of the words, right? Uh, so you can tell that, uh, uh, that fida and fortuna go together. Because of their, because of how they're ending, because of how they end, because of their cases, right? Whereas in a language like English, which is not an inflected language, it's only by proximity. So if you take the adjective and you move it to the opposite end of the sentence from the noun, you've just changed what it modifies, right? And you've probably made nonsense of the sentence. That's not how Latin works. And so since Latin is sort of plastic in that way, right? Since you can mess with the word order the word order then becomes something that a poet can use in order to uh, uh, to do some really interesting stuff, as Tom was saying. So the way that he takes these and he, he presents them, uh, so Boethius presents these words, these, these, uh, these adjectives and nouns in, this, in these two lines, in a kind of a non-conventional order, right? You can still figure out which ones go with which and get the sense of the sentence. But you can see how, as he says, the interweaving of the words suggests the inextricable involvement of good and bad fortune, just as the relationship between the two clauses of the sentence suggests how sudden the change from one to the other can be. Right? Um, so it's a, it's, it's a totally different kind of poetic technique um, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that you can do in Latin that is just it doesn't matter how good a poet you are or how careful a translator you are. You just can't do that in English. You can't do it the same way. You have to do something else, in which case it might be awesome, but it's different, right? So there's no point pretending that you're just getting uh, the original. Yeah. So, Tom, thank you for uh, 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 lobbing uh, that uh, uh, slow pitch for to, to set me up for my rant again. Uh, and that is such a great illustration of that. Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, good. Um, let's see. Um, uh, okay, yeah, uh, uh, Patricia, I see that question. Yeah, we'll come back to that a little bit later on about the natural beauty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll we'll, we'll definitely talk about that uh, in a bit. 
Thanks for pointing that out. I'll try to remember that. Remind me again later, Patricia, if I don't uh, if I don't uh, come back to that later. All right. So that was our little taste uh, of the Latin at the beginning. Now let's move on to book two. It's time we 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 did our diagnosis last week, right? And it's time to start applying some remedies. Um, now let me just say at the beginning. We're probably not going to finish all of book two this time. Remember, this is why I scheduled an extra week after book three and another extra week after book five, because I know, you know, book one is the shortest of the books, so we, we, we end simplest. Uh, so we got through all of book one last time. I, I, I don't have any ambitions to get through all of book two this time, though I do hope to get most of the way through book two this time. So we'll see how we do. Okay. Lady Philosophy is now going into treatment mode. What is it, my friend, that has thrown you into grief and sorrow? Do you think that you have encountered something new and different? You are wrong if you think that fortune has changed towards you. This is her nature, the way she always behaves. She is changeable, and so in her relations with you, she has merely done what she always does. This is the way she was when she flattered you and led you on with the pleasures of false happiness. You have merely discovered the two-faced nature of this blind goddess. Although she still hides herself from others, she is now wholly known to you. If you like her, abide by her conditions and do not complain. But if you hate her treachery, ignore her and her deceitful antics. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's unpack this a little bit. Remember where he started, right? Some of those lines we were just looking at, uh, uh, go, look, looking back to the beginning of book one, right? In the initial poem, the initial complaint that he's uttering with the help of the muses whom Lady Philosophy kicks out of the room, right? His first thing is, uh, fortune has changed, right? Fortune has betrayed me. Uh, you know, fortune had, had, had lifted me up on high and now fortune has turned her back on me and stripped me of everything. And, and unjustly, remember it was the injustice that drove him craziest of all, right? And he was like, how in a well-regulated world can injustices like this be allowed to go on? I mean, it shouldn't be allowed, right? Um, this was his, so the, the, the fact of the reversal first, and secondly, the injustice, the apparent arbitrariness of it, not correlated with goodness and deserving, right? Um, as would seem to be, you know, necessary or expected in an orderly universe. Those were the things that were really bothering him, as we looked at last time. Her first response. So last time she didn't respond at all, right? Remember, she, she kind of came back and she was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. You're right, right? Like, yes, you deserved well and you got the shaft. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's totally what happened. Um, and then she diagnosed him, right? Um, now she's starting to respond. And you notice the very first place she goes is to the first thing he said, right? Fortune has changed. Fortune used to bless me, and now fortune is cursing me. And what does she say? You think fortune has changed? No, it hasn't. Fortune is, is the same. Fortune is always like this. This is what fortune is. You have not found that fortune has changed her attitude towards you. You have just now learned what her attitude actually is. But it was always like that, right? If you thought you were the favorite of fortune, right? That was a very popular classical phrase. I am fortune's favorite. Um, If you thought you were fortune's favorite, you're deceiving yourself. That's just not how fortune rolls, right? She doesn't make favorites. Uh, she doesn't keep favorites. Uh, she might lift some people up, but she'll tear them down too. She doesn't care. That's what she's like, right? Um, you are wrong if you think that fortune has changed. This is her nature. This is the way she always behaves. Fortune is not inconstant, 
fortune is constant. It's constant in its inconstancy. The fact that it's always changing around, this is, again, this is exactly what you should expect from fortune. You have discovered the truth about fortune. Again, not like you discovered, like basically what you've discovered is that she was lying to you the whole time, right? Um, back when you thought you were happy and secure and everything was good, right? So you notice like it seems kind of, um, kind of harsh in a sense, right? You know, he's saying like, I deserved better, right? I, I was unjustly, tra- like this was, this was, this was horrible that I should be so, uh, uh, so unjustly treated, right? And what she says, she's like, well, you know, actually the problem isn't the injustice that you're, that you're getting right now. The problem, in a sense, is what you, is the good stuff you got before, right? Uh, you thought that you were receiving the just reward of your, you know, of your virtue. You weren't. That wasn't the just reward of your virtue. That was just fortune's favor, which she can take away and will count on it. And you've seen that now, right? So, yeah, so you, you're not getting... You're not getting, you're, you're not, um, you were not fortune's favor, but fortune wasn't rewarding you. She's not in that business, right? So she wasn't just before and suddenly turned unjust. She was unjust all along, in fact. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Mario. Her behavior hasn't changed, just your perception of it, right? Um, and the perception has changed for the better, right? Your eyes are open now. Now you're seeing what she's really like. Now you're seeing the truth about her. Whereas before, when you felt like I am lifted up on high and it's right that it should be so because I'm kind of awesome, right? I mean, there are other problems potentially with that. Um, but what, you know, one of the big problems that she's pointing out here is it's just, it's, it's not what was actually happening. You're fooling yourself if you think that the good fortune you were receiving was a just reward. Um, so... In a sense, what she says is really kind of the problem is bigger than you think it was, right? You think the second half of the equation was the problem. And I'm here to tell you, no, the problem was all the way through, really, right? Uh, She's not saying, oh, it's actually just. Instead, what she's saying is, no, actually, it's always been unjust. It just, by coincidence, happened to appear just before, and now its injustice is manifest, right? So that might not seem extremely comforting, uh, at the beginning, but this is the important first step. And notice where she, how she twists that at the end, right? Um, if you like her, abide by her conditions and don't complain. So, remember, he's looking back on his happiness. Oh, what I had before. Oh, in like the spring and youth. And remember all those things, right? Oh, when everything was awesome. She's like, look, if you thought that was awesome, Stick with it, right? If you, if the goods of fortune, if the gifts of fortune, if the if the favor of fortune is what you like, you can have it, right? But you've got to take fortune, right? Uh, you've got to you've got to abide by her conditions and not complain, right? If you want her, you can have her, but you've got to understand this is how she is. If you so, if you were happy before, happy and content with what you had before you shouldn't complain now, right? Because you chose fortune and this is where fortune gets you, right? Uh, if you hate what's happened now, 
if you hate the injustice of this, then you should probably rethink your attitude towards what you had before. Um, yeah, Kate, exactly. That's why she's called fortune, not justice or merit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Joyce says, so a well-ordered world is one in which expectation of justice is incorrect and one should expect injustice. Hang on. Hang on, Joyce. We're taking gentle treatment. Remember, slow steps she's taking. Uh, We're going to get there. Uh, She's going to show the big picture, uh, but one one small step at a time. She goes to elaborate on the whole for better or for worse thing, right, with taking fortune. Do you think that your lost happiness is a precious thing? Can present good fortune be dear to you, even though you know that you may lose it and that the loss will bring sorrow? Right? Again, notice her where she's going with this, right? Where she's going with this is not, hey, buck up, right? It's not as bad as you think now, right? Well, things suck, right? That's not, no, no, no. She's like, think back to your happiness. Really, you weren't, you weren't right to be, you shouldn't have been so happy with it, right? Why were you so, so, con- what? it's, <laughs> it's not that the, the winter you're in right now is, 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 is better than you think. It's the summer that you look back on wasn't actually all that great, Right? <laughs> but doesn't doesn't perhaps seem like the most comforting tack uh, to take at first. But this is, and remember, this for Lady Philosophy, this is gentle remedies, right? She could be much harsher than this. Um, so yeah, question the happiness you had before, because that was that was the gift of fortune, just like this is. If you cannot keep her, and if it makes you miserable to lose her, what is fickle fortune but a promise of future distress? So yeah, when things are going great. What is that but a promise of future distress? It's nothing to count on. It's nothing to be happy about. It's just like, you can know. It's going to get worse, right? It is not enough to see what is present before our eyes. Prudence demands that we look to the future, right? So you can't just like, you, you can't really go through life with a whole carpe diem attitude, right? You know, that, okay, things might get worse later on, but hey, at least I've got what I have right now. She's like, no. What if, 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 if at any day you might lose the happiness that you have, if a reversal like this can happen and take this stuff away from you, then how good is it, right? You shouldn't have been so focused on it. Um, remember the action that she had to take before Boethius would even recognize her in book one, how she had to wipe the tears from his eyes, right? She had to wipe the the mortal cares away. In a sense, that's what she's doing again right here, right? Um, lamenting for what he's lost, he's been blinded by that, right? And what she, so the first thing she does is she's like, look, let, let me wipe that away, right? Um, what you've lost, I'm not sure it was as great as you think, right? Um, let's acknowledge, that, let's, let's see if we can come, come to an understanding of that, before we even deal with the reversal and the uh, and the injustice, um, okay. Let's see. Oh yeah, the double certainty of loss and consequent misery should prevent both the fear of her threats and the desire of her favors. Right. So does this mean you should just be depressed? No. No. Yeah. Um, uh, Stephen Cover saying, you know, last class, book one. Uh, it sounded just like Job, right? This sounds much more like Ecclesiastes, right? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity under the sun. 
Yeah, Stephen, except Lady Philosophy isn't arguing for the kind of, uh, you know, kind of generally cynical attitude that uh, that the preacher in Ecclesiastes has. Because, um, uh, again, notice, notice, Stephen, what she just said in that last sentence I read, right? Um, the double certainty of loss and consequent misery should not just make you hopeless and give up on everything, right? Notice what it insulates you from. The knowledge, right? The knowledge that any kind of good fortune you have is almost certainly just a setup for disappointment later on, right? Anything you gain is just something that you can lose, right? And you know that it, you can lose it at any time, right? Um, you know, whatever, like, illness, stock market crash, who knows, right? It can get taken away from you. If you know it can get taken away from you, then it's not secure, right? So, so the certainty of loss and of consequent misery should prevent both the fear of her threats and the desire of her favors, right? So it should cure you of the desire. Of, you should stop pining away for the gifts of fortune, right? Because they're unstable and she can and will take them away, right? But it also prevents the fear of her threats. Like, who cares, right? Why, why live in fear? If you, again, if you know it's going to go away, right? Then you're not going to be like, oh my gosh, what if I lose it? Well, of course you're going to lose it, right? So don't, don't, don't live in fear, right? Um, <laughs> interesting, both Tony uh, and Joyce uh, are thinking of Buddha at the same time. Not exactly. I think as we go on, I think you'll see the differences between what Lady Philosophy is teaching and Buddhist renunciation. Um, all right, let's keep going. Finally, once you have submitted yourself to her chains, to fortune's chains, you ought to take calmly whatever she can do to you. If you were to wish for a law to control the comings and goings of one whom you have freely taken for your mistress, you would be unjust, and your impatience would merely aggravate a condition which you cannot change. If you hoist your sails in the wind, you will go where the wind blows you, not where you choose to go. If you put seeds in the ground, you must be prepared for lean as well as abundant years. Now, that last point I find particularly interesting, right? Um, what Boethius does there, you know, so what, to, or I'll say what Lady Philosophy does there, right, is point to two things which are two of the most common examples of fortune, right? So, like, what are two, two uh, remember, classical world, right? Two of the two of the, the 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 central illustrations of like what it means to be subject to the whims of fortune would be planting crops and going on a voyage. Like whether you're traveling on a voyage or whether you know you uh, uh, you're a merchant, right, and you own stuff and you're 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 shipping it by sea, right? You have seed, right? So you gather a harvest. You keep part of that harvest. You don't eat it. You don't make it into bread or whatever. You keep it so that you can sow it as seed, right? Then you take it and you throw it in the ground and you do your best, but you kind of cross your fingers, right? It's out of your control. It might come up. It might do well. It might not do well. It might be good seed. It might be crappy seed. You can't be a hundred percent sure. Why? Because it's not up to you, right? So, I, I mean, I, 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 as you can imagine, uh, you know, in a in a in a in a an old agrarian society, whether the crops do well that year is one of the biggest illustrations, one of the biggest exam not illustrations, but examples of strokes of good or bad fortune, right? Same thing with sea travel, right? 
a lot of the time that works out just fine, right? You travel faster and more efficiently and you can ca uh, carry bigger cargo, longer distances, more securely, unless a storm comes up and sinks the ship and you lose everything, right? Which can always happen at any time and you never know, right? Just ask Antonio and the Merchant of Venice, right? This kind of thing happens all the time. Um, so those are two examples of fortune and good and bad fortune happening. But notice what Lady Philosophy is doing. She points to those <clears throat> not as examples, but as illustrations of fortune. Do you see what I mean? She makes them from examples into metaphors for fortune. If you hoist your sails in the wind, you go where the wind blows you, not where you choose to go. Right? So, um, again, the, uh, the sailing ship is not just an example of fortune. It's a metaphor for how we uh, uh, for how we are whenever we, if we choose to take fortune for our mistress, right? If we decide, okay, like, I'm about, you know, being happy and, and like all of the, the gifts of fortune, right? Which we'll see, which we'll talk about later in the book. You know, I, like, I'm going to, I'm going to put my, like, I'm going to, I'm going to consider myself happy if I have wealth and power and, uh, honors and, uh, fame and all that stuff, Right. You know, all those things which most people consider, like, consider making it, right? Consider winning at life. So if you, if you're going to invest in that, it's like hoisting your sail up to the wind and you go where the wind blows you. And often that's going to work out great, right? But often it's not. And you throw your seeds in the ground and sometimes that's going to work out great and sometimes that's not. And if you're going to do that, you have to be prepared, Right? You can't complain. If you sow your seed, maybe it'll come up, maybe it won't come up, right? Um, but that's exactly, Tony, that's the game you play. Um, uh, no, see, Mario, in the illustration, putting up your... Oh, yes, yes. So the, the blowing on the sails and the, the, the growing of the crops, either well or badly, right? And the blowing on the sails, either constructively or destructively, right? Um, those are the actions of fortunes, right? Exactly. Um, and they reveal her character. She's going to be sometimes one, sometimes the other, and you can count on that. It's always going to be the case. If you want a guaranteed winner, don't, don't, don't go for worldly success because you're not going to find a guaranteed winner there. Um, because exactly, Jennifer, the game you're playing is the Wheel of Fortune. Um, this poem, by the way, poem one of book two, probably the most famous passage in this entire book. When the, when fortune turns her wheel with her proud right hand, she is as unpredictable as the flooding Euripus. At one moment, she fiercely tears down mighty kings. At the next, the hypocrite exalts the humbled captive. She neither hears nor cares about the tears of those in misery. With a hard heart, she laughs at the pain she causes. This is the way she amuses herself. This is the way she shows her power. She shows her servants the marvel of a man despairing and happy within a single hour. That's fortune. That's what she's like. Um, uh, <laughs> Kate is... Uh, Quoting Frank Sinatra, riding high in April, shot down in May. Exactly. Wheel of Fortune. He's got it. He's got it. That's it. Um, the Wheel of Fortune, the image of the Wheel of Fortune is um, 
is the the most enduring image from this book. This is the, the, the visual image. This is the metaphor that more than anything else from this book was seized upon uh, and uh, uh, proliferated. And yes, the modern game show uh, with Pat Sajak and Jana and Vanna White is based on this. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same idea. I've always, I, I was kind of admired uh, that fact, actually. The only problem is they get the wheel wrong. Right, it's a theirs is a horizontal wheel. It's supposed to be a vertical wheel, of course. Uh, and the image that I've been using at the front end of my slides, the image uh, from the web page, uh, and you know our, our our course art here is from a medieval manuscript depicting uh, the Wheel of Fortune. Um, this is what the Wheel of Fortune always looks like. Sometimes it's bigger. Sometimes it has chairs. These dudes are just clinging to it, right? But here's Fortune, um, and you see it. This is in English, right? The Queen of Fortune. It says in the back, the the Queen of Fortuna, um, and she's turning the wheel, right? And these guys are riding it up. Right? And these guys are getting chucked down the other side. And that's the way the Wheel of Fortune works. It has to be a vertical wheel because you have to be able to fall off it. And not just fall off, not just like you might fall off it. Right? If it's a horizontal wheel, you know, it creates the illusion that if you hold on real tight, you might, you might, you might make it. Right? No. Like you're on the way up and then you come down and you are slammed into the ground. And that's how it works. Right. Um, there might sometime be chairs, but there are never seat belts. Uh, there are no safety restraints on the Wheel of Fortune. Uh, you are designed to get uh, 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 flung out of it. Um, those of you who know the uh, uh, the Arthurian story really well may remember in a bunch of versions of the Arthurian story on the night before the Battle of Salisbury Plain, when when Arthur receives his mortal wound. Um, in his final battle with Mordred, he has a dream, and his dream is the dream of, of the Wheel of Fortune. And in his dream, he rides the Wheel of Fortune up, and then he's up at the top, and he's got the round table, and he's the king of the world, and then she turns her wheel, you know, Lady Fortune smiles and turns her wheel and smashes him to the ground, and he describes in his dream, he falls and hits the ground, and all of his bones are broken, and he wakes up, right? Um, uh, which is kind of a bad sign. And, of course, it, it is indeed a prophecy of his fall the, the very next day uh, in, uh, um, at, 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 at the battle, a warning which he does not heed. Um, so, okay, so, so this is the, as I say, hugely, hugely important moment here uh, with the Wheel of Fortune. There we are. Okay. But another thing to, 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 to point out here, so, I mean, again, it's, Notice the inevitability of the fall. Again, that's, she's, this is another thing that, for, that, you know, again, to illustrate the thing that Lady Philosophy has been saying. This is how fortune is. The, the fall is inevitable. You can't, if you ride a Ferris wheel, right? Um, you know, how many times, I remember there have been several times when I've been in like an amusement park or something, and I, I rode the Ferris wheel just so that I could get the, like, the vantage to look around, right? Like, you know, can I see where things are? From? I, I, I want to get a bird's eye view of things so I can plan like which ride to go on next. I know I've done that before, right? So I, I ride the Ferris wheel so that I can see from the top, right? Um, my goal going on the Ferris wheel is to be brought up high into the sky so I can see everything, right? Um, so that's what, I'm, that's what I'm paying the money for, right? That, that's why I wait on, on, on the line to get on the Ferris wheel. It would be pretty stupid of me, however, to complain that I got pulled down the other side as well. Right. You know, it's like, OK, like I, I'm on this ride to go up. Right. But the nerve of bringing me back down again. 
And it's like, dude, that's how it works, right? You can't ride up one side without riding down the other side. And if you're going to complain about that, you know, if somebody's like, so how is the Ferris wheel? If you're going to say like, well, it was fine, except I came down on afterwards, right? Jerks. I mean, come on. That's how it works. And that's exactly what Lady Philosophy is saying. That's how fortune fortune works. Okay. So, um, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't get, um, you can't get worked up about it like that. Um, so, but, but another thing, another thing that I think is, is really important here is that Lady Philosophy is not suggesting that fortune is innocent, right? Notice how she characterizes fortune in this poem. Fortune likes it, right? Uh, she does not hear or care about the tears of those in mercy. Why? Is she so hardened? Is she, uh, is she, you know, because like justice doesn't care about the cries or tears of those in misery either, right? Um, I mean, like those who are the victims of injustice, yeah. Um, but like if you beg, if, if you go to justice, um, you know, like the, 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 the allegory, the, the allegorical figure of justice, if you go to justice and cry out, you know, weep and cry for mercy, she's not going to listen to you. That's not her job. That's mercy's job, right? Uh, it's not justice's job. Justice doesn't care, right? Um, fortune doesn't care either. So why, is, is, is that why? Does, does, does she have the impartiality of justice? Notice she's blind, right? Um, uh, she, uh, Lady Philosophy said that in the last uh, passage, right? Uh, um, she called her blind. I'm losing it. But anyway, she did. She said, she said that, uh, blind fortune uh, and fortune turning her wheel. She's not in the image, uh, that we use for this class. Um, but often she's depicted as blindfolded, right? So she's blindfolded with her wheel and almost always with a smile on her face, right? Fortune likes her job. Um, but that's why she doesn't care because she laughs at it, right? If you're suffering, she thinks it's funny, right? There's nothing she likes, but she likes both sides, right? Hey, look, there's uh, like a poor, unfortunate, undeserving person. I'm going to elevate them up and put them at the top of the world, right? Because that's awesome and funny, right? And you know, it's just as funny taking them down and smashing them back into the dirt on the other side. That is what fortune likes. This is the way she amuses herself and shows her power, right? So she's very, Lady Philosophy, very unflattering to fortune here, right? Um, she is totally untrustworthy. She is reliably untrustworthy. She hurts people and likes it. But again, you see how this reinforces what she's been saying all the way through so far, right? She says, don't blame fortune. Just don't trust her ever, ever. Don't trust her when you're going up. Don't trust her when you're going down. Just have nothing. You, what, what you should want, again, be proof from both the fear and the uh uh you know and the 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 misery right you know it's it's all it's all it's all it's all great um it, just ignore it all forget it all just don't take her as your mistress in the first place right um then she goes lady philosophy takes a different tack right she's still approaching the same idea but she does it from a different angle and that's when she gives fortune's theoretical counterargument Right? She's like, okay, if you went to Fortune, right, if, if, if Lady Fortune were here uh, and you were to say to her, D- you done me wrong, man, 
like you took all my stuff. You, you, what you did wasn't right, Fortune. Right? If Boethius said to, to Fortune what he said in book one, Lady Philosophy says, here's what Fortune would say. When nature produced you from your mother's womb, I found you naked and lacking in everything. I nourished you with my abundant gifts, and being inclined to favor you, an attitude which you now seem to hold against me, I endowed you with all the affluence and distinction in my power. So I gave you everything, everything, right? Including, like, your birth and, and everything that you had and all of your, your family situation. And so, You didn't choose any of that, right? I gave it to you, right? Now it pleases me to withdraw my favor. You should be grateful for the use of things which belonged to someone else. You have no legitimate cause for complaint, as though you lost something which was your own. Why then are you so sad? I've done you no injury. Riches, honors, and all good fortune belong to me. They obey me as servants obey their mistress. They come with me, and when I go, they go too. I would even say that if the things which you complain about losing had really been yours, you would never have lost them. The fact that you lost them proved they were never really yours to begin with. Right, so, okay. Uh, I mean, you see what this sort of boils down to, right? If you say to Fortune, why did you take everything away from me? She'll say, I didn't. It, was, it wasn't it was yours. I, I, you borrowed it from me in the first place. I gave it to you, right? If I give you a gift, I can take it back. Why can't I? Who are you to tell me what I can do with my stuff? It's my stuff. It's not your stuff, right? So, you know, why should this injustice of you losing everything you had happen to you? It didn't happen to you. You didn't lose anything you had, right? You All you had was borrowed. It wasn't yours. It was mine, says Fortune, and I can take it back again. Again, notice the same trend. The problem, Lady Philosophy argues, is not the attitude towards things when you lose them, but the attitude towards things when you had them, right? If you didn't make the mistake in the first place of thinking they belonged to you, of thinking they were intrinsically a part of you, of thinking that you should have had, that you deserved, uh, and were entitled to all the good things you were given, losing them wouldn't affect you quite so much, would it? Okay, um... So that's the first part of uh, Fortune's counter-argument, but then it gets really interesting. Why should I alone be deprived of my rights? Still Fortune, theoretically speaking, right? The heavens are permitted to grant bright days, then blot them out with dark nights. The year may decorate the face of the earth with flowers and fruits, then make it, a bar- then make it barren again with clouds and frost. The sea is allowed to invite the sailor with fair weather, then terrify him with storms. Shall I, then... Permit man's insatiable cupidity to tie me down to a sameness, alien to my habits? Here is the source of my power, the game I always play. I spin my wheel and find pleasure in raising the low to a high place and lowering those who are on top. Go up if you like, but only on condition that you will not feel abused when my sport requires your fall. Now, again, that latter thing is, is very similar to what she's to what she's been saying. Um... But um, the first part is the part that really strikes me and that I think is so important to see the significance of, right? Notice the context that Fortune puts herself in, or rather, because this is not actually Fortune speaking, right? Notice the, the, the context that Lady Philosophy puts Fortune in, right? What is Fortune like? 
fortune is like the cycle of the day and the night. Fortune is like the cycle of the seasons. Fortune is like the changing of the weather, right? Fortune is like the alteration of the tides. That's what fortune's like. Remember when that stuff came up in book one? Because it's super important. Remember when Boethius was saying, you know, uh, uh, everything seems horrible and nothing seems just in the world, right? Lady Philosophy said, hey, aren't you the guy who used to work with me all the time? Right? You're the one that I taught all these things. And remember what she emphasized? Remember where his conviction, what his convictions about the orderliness and justice of the universe, remember what it was based on? It was based on natural philosophy. It was based on his observations of astronomy and of the orderliness of the world, right? That he could not believe that a world that was as orderly as this would be arbitrary, right? That would have, uh, you know, uh, uh, as Kay said last week, you know, God, you missed a spot, right? Uh, humanity, in other words. People. Um, everything is orderly except people. Um, so notice, the core thing, the very thing which is the essence of the injustice, the arbitrariness that Boethius was pointing to in book one, right? Fortune, this arbitrary, in unjust change of fortune. Lady Philosophy now suggests it's part of that same regular natural cycle, just like the day and the night, the spring and the winter, right? The high tide and the low tide. To say to fortune, it's unjust of you to take your gifts away, is exactly like yelling at the tide for going out. How You've betrayed me by going out after coming in, right? I thought you were coming in and going to swell everything up to... It was great, and now you've left. You're leaving me, right? How dare you? Um, oh, sun, after, you know, shining on me all day, now you're leaving me in darkness. How dare you, right? Fortune, is fortune arbitrary? Yeah, blind, arbitrary, sadistic. But part of the order philosophy suggests, as much a part of the order, as predictable a part of the order, as the seasons and the days, right? Um, And the fact that the weather is going to shift, right? Um, Exactly, Rachel. Fortune is a created being acting in accordance with her nature. She's part of the system, right? She's part of the... she's She's not an aberration. God didn't miss a spot. Fortune is part of the system. Exactly. Um, Yeah, it's almost like to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven, Tony. By the way, notice several of you are, uh, uh, have been making lots of biblical connections all the way through, which is very true. Uh, Two things that I would point out. Um, First, notice as Tom was pointing out in the uh, uh, in in his comment on the Latin about both the similarity to Job, uh, right in the 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 outcry that Boethius made in 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 poem one, uh, but also the similarity to old classical tradition, right to to old Greek tradition. That's that's Boethius. That's how Boethius rolls, right? Are you right to hear echoes 
of biblical ideas and biblical passages? Oh, absolutely. I don't think that's an accident, right? But I think it's important that he's not quoting them, right? That's Boethius's method all the way through. And I'm going to draw our attention more and more to keep your eye out for those. Uh, and I think that increasingly as we go through, we'll see some kind of fun things, right? Um, the consolation of philosophy does not at all ignore the Bible, nor is it in any way irrelevant to Christian teaching or biblical teaching. But his approach is different. The, the fundamental approach of the consolation of philosophy is not to rest any of his arguments merely on the authority of Scripture, right? Because, of course, that argument is only going to hold if you're already a Christian, right? If you already believe in the authority of the Bible. If you don't, you're not going to listen to it, right? So he doesn't do that. He does give arguments and say things which also, to me, uh, sound very clearly and deliberately sort of in parallel with what is said in Scripture, right? He he brings his argument into contact with the Bible many times, um, but he doesn't just quote the Bible and rely upon its authority ever at any point. That's It's not what he's doing. Um, uh so what he what he does rely on is uh, is classical stuff, sort of te- classical teachings uh, uh, and uh, uh, and and sort of uh, traditional philosophical, you know, pagan philosophical ideas. Okay, um, so fortune is part of the system. Interesting. Okay, so we, we 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 look at the bigger context and we see that's kind of fascinating. So more. Um, uh, this is still lady philosophy ventriloquizing fortune here, right? If free-handed plenty should dispense riches from her cornucopia, as plentiful as the sands cast up by the storm-tossed sea, or as the stars that shine in heaven on clear nights, men still would not stop crying their miserable complaints, right? Um, even though God were over-generous, with treasures of gold, and deigned to satisfy every plea, if he favored the ambitious with the greatest honors, still all this would not satisfy. Ravenous greed would devour everything, and then discover other wants. No bridle can restrain man's disordered desires within reasonable bounds. Even when he is filled with great favors, he burns with thirst for more. No man can be rich who cries fearfully and considers himself to be poor." Right, um, you know, do you know many rich people who are like, I'm rich enough, I'm good, I'm, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop getting money now. I, I, I have enough, I'm done. Right? Generally, not how it works. Right? Um, uh, one last point that I want to make to set this up uh, that I forgot in the on the previous slide here. Shall I then permit man's insatiable cupidity to tie me down to a sameness? alien to my habits, right? If if fortune were to be... So, again, take Boethius's case, right? Fortune had been good to Boethius. She had blessed him with everything she had. He was rich, he was famous, he was honored, uh, he was powerful, right? He was influential, he was respected, everything. Everything you could have, he, he, he had, right? Um, he's complaining that she changed, right? Oh, things were great, now things are awful. Right, so she's like, "What do you want, dude? You want continuous blessing, nothing but blessing all the time, right?" 
that's not a desire for justice. It's cupidity. It's greed, right? You just, you want more and more all the time, right? You want, you, you want your greed to rule over my nature, says Fortune, right? You want me to change the way I am for your sake. Why? Because you want stuff. You want more stuff, right? You want to keep all your stuff more, you know, for longer than I get. Okay, right? In the end, she suggests or implies it doesn't even really have anything to do with justice, right? It has to do with greed. And this is how then she follows that up. Okay, she's like, thought experiment. What would happen if we did that? What would happen if everybody got what they wanted? Would everybody be happy? Right? If everybody got everything they wanted, would they be happy? And Fortune's answer is, no, they wouldn't. People are always going to complain. It doesn't matter how much money you've got, right? I mean, I don't know, you know, those of you, you know, who are my age, right, may have this experience that I've had many times. Have you ever had the experience where, you know, like sometimes like my wife and I would be talking about money, right, and be thinking about our budget and how much money we have and whether we can afford to do this or that. And we'll be like, oh man, you know, kind of tight this year, right? I don't know if we're going to be able to afford this or whatever. Uh, And like, have you ever had that moment where you sort of flashback? Like, I remember doing my finances when my wife and I were first, we got married at the age of 23. We were living in a one bedroom apartment in New York City while I was still at Columbia. And, uh, you know, and I remember like doing my income taxes back in those years, like back in 98 or something and how much we, our annual income was, you know, like, like here you put our, our entire annual income of, of money in one pan and the total amount we were spending on tuition per year in the other pan. Right. And, and compare that to how things are now. Right. I mean, goodness, if you had gone back and told, you know, my 24 year old self, right. Okay. Here's, here's this budget. You know, here's your, here's your 2017 budget. You know, I would have been like, we have won the lottery. Right. But, uh, but no, no, you know, now, nowadays I'm like, man, barely make ends meet. Right. That's how it is. That's always how it is. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's fun. Right. Again, this is this is this is how things are. Even if you always get everything you want, will you ever be content? Will you be happy? Will you want for nothing? No, you want for more. Um, you will always burn with thirst for more. Um, no matter how rich you are, you will always feel poor. Um, so, and 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 this is an interesting piece of evidence that fortune seemed to be bringing forward. Right. In other words, she's saying, you're complaining that I take stuff away. Look, I might as well. It's not going to make any difference, right? I mean, you're going to, like, it's not like it's a difference between you're being happy and you're being miserable. The fact that getting everything that you ask for isn't going to make you happy anyway, you'll just move on to something else to be worried about or something more to ask for, right, should show you true happiness doesn't rest in those things, right? If getting a thing doesn't bring you content and happiness, then clearly, logically, that thing was never going to be able to bring you happiness. That thing is not intrinsically connected to your happiness, 
right? Um, again, so notice this is still this is still the same argument she's been you know she she she's been elaborating this argument from the beginning, right? Again, the problem is not so much the latter end of what fortune did. The problem was really your understanding of an attitude towards that first part, right? You invested in it too much. You felt you deserved it and it was yours. You thought that that was happiness, right? Turns out that was, in a manner, a confusion. Um, Let's keep going. Lady Philosophy again speaking now in her own voice. This is the first time she, Fortune of course, ever frowned on you with her evil eye. If you balance the number and kinds of your joys and misfortunes, you must admit that up to now you have been a happy man. If you think yourself unfortunate because you have now lost the things which seemed to make you happy before, still you should not make yourself miserable, because this sorrow will also pass. Okay. So, a couple things here. Um, let's... Uh, She's so ha- having kind of established that other point she was making. She's she's kind of changing tack now, or she's adding a new thing, right? She's taking a step back and saying, "Let's look at this whole situation from a different angle," right? Um, now she asks what we might have expected her to say at the beginning, right? She says, "How has fortune really been to you, right? Big picture now, right?" Don't just look at where you are this moment. Add it all up. Look over your whole life. Right? Um, and that's what she says. You have to admit that up until now you've been a happy man. Right? You know, you've received a lot of blessings. And yes, yes. You remember she had acknowledged she didn't try to fight him on this in book one. Yes, you've received a raw deal here. Right? You're currently getting the shaft. But you've been blessed for a long time up to this, right? Big picture. How much do you really have to complain about? Because again, remember the first thing that she accomplished in the first section of book two. And that is separating the idea of these external rewards, these worldly rewards, from deserving, from justice, right? You weren't happy and blessed because you deserved it. You were happy and blessed arbitrarily, just as arbitrarily as it's been taken away. So since it was all arbitrary, the good and the bad, let's look at the whole picture, right? You were given some arbitrary good and some arbitrary bad in your life, right? Uh, and again, notice she, here she, she quotes, but she quotes not the Bible, but Homer, right? About the two urns that Zeus has, one with fortune and one with misfortune, right? And he dips into both urns all the time, right? So she's like, hey, you know, so how much from each urn have you gotten in your life? You know, when you sit back and look at it, come on now, you've got to admit, you've had more good than bad. Again, sucks right now, right? I get that. But big picture, you know, um, it's not been all bad on balance. Your life's been pretty good. And also notice the thing that she emphasizes at the end, because this sorrow will also pass, right? Um... Remember your um, uh, your knowledge of the true nature of fortune insulates you, not just from uh, uh, from uh, from the bad stuff, but from the good stuff, 
right? From both sides, right? Um, you, you've seen how arbitrary it is. So guess what? What you're, the bad you're experiencing now, also arbitrary. Um, you might go back up Fortune's Wheel. That also happens, right? Um, what, what have we learned about Fortune? She's going to, she'll change, right? So don't start thinking to yourself like, no, everything's awful and everything's always going to be awful. Uh, You don't know that. In fact, you've got good reason not to think that, right? Um, I love Boethius' response to this. His, oh, uh, little typo there, objection. His objection here, he's like, dude, that totally doesn't help, (laughs) right? Then I answered, everything you say is true, dear nurse of all virtues. I do not deny that I came quickly to great prosperity, but the memory of it is what causes me most pain. For in the midst of adversity, the worst misfortune of all is to have once been happy. Right? I mean, it's it's like tantalizing, right? Like that just to know that, you know, this was given to me and then ripped away. All right? It'd be easier if I'd gotten the shaft my whole life. Right? But like the memory of the happiness is 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 this is really awful, right? This is this is what what, what makes it worst. Look at her response to this. Besides, she says, those most blessed are often the most sensitive. Unless everything works out perfectly, they are impatient at disappointment and shattered by quite trivial things. It takes very little to spoil the perfect happiness of the fortunate. Just think how many people would consider themselves lucky to have only a small part of your remaining good fortune. Right? Let's have some perspective here, Boethius, right? Mr. Like... Oh, like, but oh, when I just think back on the good fortune that I had, it's awful. And she's like, hang on, time out. Can we count our blessings just now? Right? Let's, let's focus on what you've got. Again, remember she's acknowledged you've gotten the shaft. Right? You don't deserve what's happened to you, and what has happened to you is awful. True. Especially compared to what you had before. But come on now. Back up a second. Um, this very place which you call a land of exile is home. To those who live here, nothing is miserable unless you think it's so. And on the other hand, nothing brings happiness unless you're content with it. Right? Um, remember, he's, he's in prison, but he's not in a jail cell. Again, don't imagine him in a modern penitentiary. Uh, he's, a, he's, in, he's in house arrest in exile. Right? Um, so he's been exiled to an This is the passage I was alluding to last time when we talked about him being in jail and stuff. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so, um, he's like, oh, I've been locked away in this miserable place. Well, there are people who live on that island who call it home, right? It's exile to him. And truly he's been locked away from all of his stuff and separated from his family. And it's, you know, it's, it's awful. Um, but, um, uh, it's, um, uh, it's, it's again, Many people consider what he has even now a blessing. Um, Rachel says, is this the there are people starving in Africa argument? Yeah, essentially, right? And again, why do you why do parents say that to their kids, right? Their kids starving in Africa right now. Um, well, the reason is, is to try to give perspective, right? Uh, step outside your sheltered little experience that you're having just now, right? I don't deny that the horrible misfortune that you are currently feeling for being 
compelled to eat your green beans um, feels awful to you, right? I give you that, right? This is dreadful. This is dreadful. But you know what makes it seem less dreadful? When we actually put it into context about what other people are suffering, right? And how thankful the starving people in Africa would be to have those green beans, right? To which, of course, the kid always says, let's send them to the kids in Africa, right? I I, I know. It doesn't always work with kids. uh, But that's the point, right? The thing that parents are doing is is very similar to what Lady Philosophy uh, is doing here. But of course, it's it's more than just that, right? Nothing is miserable unless you think it's so, and on the other hand, nothing brings happiness unless you're content with it, right? Um, happiness is a relative thing. It's not an absolute... There's no absolute measure of happiness. And again, here she's picking up on what she had fortune say before. There is no, like, quantity of stuff or quantity of worldly blessing you can have. And when you cross that line, it's like, okay, now you're... There's no happiness line, right? We may in our society define a poverty line, but there's no happiness line, right? Um, You know, it's if you have at least this much stuff, you're happy and content. And if you don't, you're not. But if you just bump yourself up above the line, you'll be fine. It's not like that. It doesn't work like that. Um the most blessed are often the most sensitive, and I think we've all seen this, right? People who seem to have everything getting terribly upset by a tiny, minuscule, pitiful little inconvenience, right? But to them, and again, we've, and every parent has seen this in their children, right? And to them, it's like the world is coming to an end, right? And they might as well be Boethius in exile, right? Uh, having been unjustly accused and stripped of all of their goods because I'm making him eat his green beans, right? Uh, the persecution of it. Um, exactly. For first world problems. Exactly that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, it's all, it's, 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 nothing is miserable unless you think it's so. And on the other hand, nothing brings happiness unless you're content with it. No one is so completely happy that he would not choose to change his condition if he let himself think about it impatiently, right? Again, nobody, nobody, no matter how much they have, like if you said, um, so, if I could give you anything you want, what would you want? I mean, nobody would be like, ah, I'm good. <laughs> nobody says that, right? Everybody can think of something else that they would want, something else that would that is still lacking from their perfect happiness and contentment. Um... The joy of human happiness is shot through with bitterness. No matter how unpleasant it seems when one has it, such happiness cannot be kept. Sorry, how pleasant it seems when one has it. Such happiness cannot be kept when it decides to leave. Again, it's, you, can't, you, you can't rely on it, right? Um, any happiness that you do derive from these worldly things is unstable, right? As unstable as fortune herself. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, uh, Marielle. We could all use a few more dollars or lose a few more pounds or have a bit more free time. Exactly. There's always, there's always something, always something. Um, and again, notice how this corresponds to Boethius's objection, right? He still didn't get what she was saying all the way through, Right? The memory of the happiness is the worst misfortune of all, right? The wor- worst misfortune of all is to once have been happy. And she's like, 
haven't you been paying attention to what I'm saying? You, you, you weren't really happy because you lost it. That kind of proves that you weren't really happy. Uh, if you were content with it, it was an illusion and it was dumb because you should have known not only that you could lose it, but that you're definitely going to lose it, right? Yeah. Um, okay. So, notice, um, notice for a second, um, all of these arguments <clears throat> she's been doing so far in book two are kind of warm-ups, right? None of these really makes anything better. None of this amounts to a consolation, as you'll have noticed, right? We've been talking about that. None of this is particularly consoling. If anything, it kind of seems to make it worse, right? This is all warm-up, right? Again, think for a second big picture about the things she's been saying, right? Consider the, uh, the, the, the balance of fortune, right? So, yeah, you had good fortune for a while, now you're having bad fortune, but on the whole, you know, net gain, right? That's one argument. I mean, okay, yeah, like, if you can back up and look at it totally dispassionately, maybe, but that's not going to make anybody feel better, right? Um, the, hey, even now it's not so bad as all that, right? This prison that you're in, some people call it home, right? Uh, you know, they're starving kids in in, in, in Africa, right? Um, and, you know, were you really all that happy anyway? The happiness that you had was really an illusion, wasn't it? Right? Again, none of those things makes you feel better. None of those things are calculated to make him feel better. So what is the point? What's she doing? Why is she saying these things? I would argue that her purpose in saying these things is to shake his certainty. Remember how confident he was. He knew what was what, right? He didn't know the answer. He had a dilemma that he couldn't figure out. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does this injustice occur in an orderly world with a good God? It doesn't make sense. I don't get it. Right, so he was admitting ignorance about. He did, it's not like he had all the answers, but he was sure that he knew the question. Right, he was he was he was rock solid certain about the the elements. Right, not how they all fit together, but about the elements themselves. Um, about his grievance. Right, he was full of surety about that. Um, she is eroding that rock-solid surety that he was showing in book one about his circumstance, right? I mean, think of the things that he asserted so firmly back in book one. I was totally happy before, right? I am now completely miserable. I have been robbed or cheated despite my virtue and goodness, right? In his rants in book one, he had no questions about any of those three things. We saw it from the very first poem, right? Um, and I think that this is one of the things that she means when she talks about gentle treatment, right? Before we can even deal with the main issue, right? Notice she's not addressed directly any of those three things that she diagnosed. Any of those three questions you couldn't answer? She doesn't start with those. You might expect that. Right at the end of book one, when we get those, like, the three questions he gets wrong, and she's like, yep, okay, those are your problems, let's work on that. And then she proceeds not to do that, right, and not to talk about those things at all. Um, and again, I think that this is why, right? She's got, she's got to lay the groundwork, and the groundwork she has to do is not building up, it's tearing down, right? Um, let's, let's, let's not go straight to the big guns. Let's make sure that we understand the terms of things. Let's 
be a little bit less confident about some of the things that you're taking for granted. And once you can back up and look at those in a wider context, the rest of this stuff will make a little bit more sense, right? So let's <clears throat> let's continue on. Let's let's go. So so next phase. If you will consider carefully the following argument, you will have to admit that happiness cannot depend on things which are uncertain. If happiness is the highest good of rational natures, and if nothing which can be lost can be a supreme good, because it is obviously less good than that which cannot be lost, then clearly unstable fortune cannot pretend to bring happiness. The man who enjoys fleeting happiness either knows that it is perishable, or he doesn't. If he he does not know it, his condition is unhappy, because it rests on blind ignorance. If he knows his happiness is perishable, he must live in fear of losing what what he knows can be easily lost, and such constant fears will not let him be happy. And if he should lose it, would he think that a trivial matter? Okay, so let's back up a second. Two really important givens that she points to here, right? Uh, One, and this is really central to her argument, happiness is the highest good of rational natures. This is how she is defining the word happiness, okay? She's not saying, like, I'm going to say this is, uh, this is what, uh, you know, this is what should bring you happiness. She's not saying that. She's saying this is the definition of the word happiness, right? Um, for, for the purposes of her argument, when she talks about happiness or true happiness, what she means by that is the highest good of rational natures, okay? Um, irrational natures, like plants, right? Plants can't be happy. They can, like, prosper or not, right? They can bloom or not, but they're not, they're, they, they, they can't be happy. They don't have rational natures. So they can't be happy in the same way that a rational nature can be. Um, it's connected to reason. It's connected to, to the mind, to intellect. Um, so happiness is defined as the highest good of rational natures. Okay, so if given that, um, then nothing which can be lost can be a supreme good, by definition, right? If because if it can be lost, if it's losable, then obviously it's inferior to a good which is not losable, right? And therefore, if it's inferior to something, it can't be supreme. So, if happiness is the supreme good, and if a good thing which is losable uh, is not the supreme good, therefore, logically, right, we have a, a simple syllogism here, then therefore... Those goods, losable goods, cannot bring true happiness. Not logically impossible. Right? Unstable fortune, therefore, cannot pretend to bring happiness. Again, not happiness as she's defining it here. Right? It can make make you feel good. Right? But it can't bring you happiness. It cannot bring you the highest good of rational natures. And... Look at the situation. If you're if you're subject to the goods of fortune, right? If you're focused, if you have those losable goods, all of the things that fortune can give are losable goods by definition, right? If you have any of those losable goods, you're in one of three situations, right? Um, either you've 
lost it and then you're unhappy or you haven't lost it yet. And if you haven't lost it yet, you either know that you can and are worried about losing it or you don't know that you can and you're just, uh, your happiness is based on blind ignorance and you're going to get knocked upside the head by bad fortune someday, right? None of those three outcomes is a positive outcome, right? Every single one of these uh, paths, and those are the only three options, right, for unstable fortune, right, for these losable, for, for having these losable goods. Those are the only three things that can happen to you, and none of them are good. None of them are true happiness. Um, yeah, so, um, uh, Okay, I sorry, right. Um, so from here, she launches into her examination of the gifts of fortune, right? She's like, okay, let's do case studies. Let's go through and enumerate the primary gifts of fortune, these things which bring people happiness, right? What is considered success? What's considered making it in the world, right? When you're voted most likely to succeed in your high school yearbook, um, what does that look like, right? What are the elements of that kind of success? Um, and uh, so this is where she, she introduces this. Now that I see that the soothing medicine of my discourse is taking effect, I think I may risk somewhat stronger remedies. Even if the gifts of fortune were not momentary and uncertain, there is nothing about them that can ever really be made your own. And they are vile in themselves, if you look at them carefully. Okay, so this is, this is, this is the next level, right? She's, her gentle remedies, the things we were looking at before, she has established that, you know, so in a sense, this argument is it's it's the beginning of the next phase it's also like the conclusion of the of the of the first phase of book 2 right this is it's like the conclusion of all that stuff losable goods can't bring you true happiness right so okay so Boethius is down with that he's seeing that now right she's kind of getting through to that tim but she's like okay wait but it's worse it's not just that the goods of fortune can't make you ultimately happy can't bring you stable happiness that's true but it's worse. Actually, when you look at the gifts of fortune themselves individually, they all kind of suck, actually. They, they actively suck. They don't just fail to give you perfect happiness. They don't offer much at all, actually, when you look at it closely. Um, so let's, um, let's, let's look at her case studies. Wealth. This is hard. I'm giving only a few quotations to try to kind of capture some of the elements, you know, the central elements of what she's saying about these things. Of course, the wealth section is relatively long, um, and there's a bunch of different arguments that she's making that I am not uh, quoting here at length. Um, but I think we can still kind of get to the heart of what she's saying about these things. So wealth. Therefore, it ought to be clear that none of these things which you are inclined to take credit for really belong to you. So now, again, context. The things you are inclined to take credit... She's talking about wealth. So she's talking about money, jewels, material possessions, right? All those things in the broad category of wealth, right? So when you look around and you're happy and you're feeling good and, and you're like, I've been blessed because I've got all the stuff, Right? She's like, none of these things which you're inclined to take credit for, because we do take credit for them, right? I'm awesome. How can you tell I'm awesome? Look at all my stuff, 
right? I got cooler stuff than you, which shows I am awesomer than you are, right? Or at least I am happier, right? Uh, you know, if uh, you didn't have as nice a car as I do, then obviously, like, you know, whatever, I'm, you know, happier than you are, better off than you are. Um, so these things, in that sense, that's the sense in which she's talking about taking credit for them, right? Um, none of these things which you're inclined to take credit for really belong to you, right? Again, think back to what Fortune said at the beginning. It's not yours, Right? We are big, big on possession, right? We're big on private property in our capitalist society, right? This isn't a, don't think this is like a, you know, a communist argument uh, that she's making here. It's not about communism, right? It's about what Fortune said, uh, what she had Fortune say at the very beginning of Fortune's arguments, right? You know, when Fortune said to Boethius, hey, what, do I hear you complaining that I took away your stuff? No, I didn't. I took away my stuff. I gave it all to you in the first place, right? That's, that's what Lady Philosophy is talking about. And she says, none of these things really belong to you, right? Look at your money. Look at your possessions. Is that yours? Does it belong to you? No, it was given to you, right? You got it, uh, but it's, it's not yours. It's not connected to you. Is it losable? Yeah. So it's not intrinsic to you, is it? Right. It's not really you. So you it's you may connect your worth, your personal worth with your net worth. Right. But your net worth net worth isn't part of you. It's outside of you and doesn't even belong to you. You can tell because somebody could take it away from you. And if there is no desirable beauty in these things, why should you regret losing them or be particularly elated to possess them? So notice she says, okay, so there, there are two things. So first of all, if, uh, if you feel like this says something about you, dude, it doesn't say something about you. Your wealth is separate from you. It has nothing to do with you, really. Um, but what about beautiful things, right? So like to accumulate wealth is to accumulate beautiful things. And beauty is good, right? So she's like, okay, let's consider your stuff. Um, if it's not if there's nothing desirable about it in itself, it's, if it's not intrinsically desirable, if, that, if the stuff you have is not intrinsically beautiful or good, um, then who cares? What good does it do you, right? But what if it is? What if the things that you, if some of the stuff that you have is beautiful by nature? Well, then what is that to you, she says? They would be pleasing to you even if they belong to someone else, right? So you might say like, I only want to be wealthy so that I can surround myself with beautiful things because I love beautiful things and beauty is a good is is good, right? Yeah, sure. Absolutely it is. What does that have to do with possession? Right? What does that have to do with you? It has to do with those things. Right? Those things may be beautiful. What does that have to do with it doesn't make you more beautiful, right? Um and uh if you appreciate the beauty of those things, great. What does ownership or possession have to do with that? Right? If you enjoy the beauty of those things for itself, you should enjoy it whether you own them or not, right? Uh, so none of that, she suggests here, really uh, um, really holds together. Um, they are not precious because you have them. You desire to have them because they seem precious. What then do you want, what then do you want from fortune with all your strident demands? I suppose you are trying to avoid poverty by acquiring possessions. Okay, so poverty is an evil, right? So I'm not trying to accumulate toys. You know, I don't care about that. I'm not trying to surround myself with ornaments and beautiful things and whatever. I uh, I just want to avoid poverty, right? That's not so much to ask, right? I just want I just want enough so I'm not poor. 
Um, but you find it, you will find just the opposite. You will need more in order to keep the various valuable things you have. Those who have much need much, and on the contrary, those who limit their possessions to their natural needs rather than to their excessive ambitions need very little. And this is a very old argument. You can read this argument in lots and lots of classical moralists. Uh, you know, the argument that says, um, you know what poor people don't need? Security systems. That's what poor people don't need, right? Um, you know, the famous image uh, in, uh, in the poet Marshall of the poor person who can walk down the road whistling, not worrying about the highway robbers, right? Because nobody's going to bother to rob him, right? He's fine. He's safe. He's good, right? Whereas the rich person has to hire guards and always be worried that, like, their stuff is going to be seized. Remember, of course, this is especially true uh, in, uh, you know, the old world when, like, you your money was in, like, physical gold that could be taken, you know, could easily be stolen from you, right? Um, but, of course, you could say it's just as true in the modern world, right, with identity theft and people seizing your digital assets. Uh, so, you know, kind of same deal, right? Um, the more you have... Um, the, the I think, like, the, the identity theft thing would be, like, the equivalent of, uh, of uh, the, the sort of the the Marshall saying for, for the modern world. Um, but uh, anyway, so again, that's sort of a, a, a very classic argument about wealth. Like you, you, you say you want wealth because you want to be independent, but your wealth makes you dependent. Right. As Kate says, it's uh, uh, it, the willingness not to belong to your belongings. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, and connected back with things that lady philosophy has been saying about wealth. Right. The more you have, the more worried you are about it. Um, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, do you, uh, do you worry more about the stock market now or back when, you know, you were still a grad student or, you know, an undergrad and didn't have any investments, right? Um, that's the kind of thing, you know, that she's, uh, that she's talking about here. Um, yeah, good. Um, Okay, good, good. Uh, uh, Joyce, good. Joyce is thinking about what about what about using uh, money, you know, having money and, and, and using it to do a good thing, right? Like some of the things that uh, that 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 some some big philanthropic found foundations like the Gates Foundation do, um, you know, uh, that's that's good, right? So wealth is good when used for that. I would say, hang on, hang on, Joyce, wait for it. She's going to come back around to this. Uh, I'll talk about this more in a in a little in a little bit. But um, suffice to say, this is not her last word on wealth, on any of the goods of fortune. This is her first pass of them, and I'll come back to what I mean by that a little bit more in a, in a minute. Um, what about power? Uh, power, simply power over other people, like the authority over people. What indeed is this power which you think so very desirable? You should consider, poor earthly animals, what it is that you seem to have in your power. So, okay, so when you have power over people, right? Everybody wants power, right? Everybody wants authority. It's all about power. Just ask, ask academics, right? Academics are obsessed with power. Uh, as one of my grad professors uh, used to say, academics are obsessed with power for the same reason that the Elizabethan, the you know, people in Shakespeare's culture were obsessed with order, because they didn't have any. Um... 
Uh, anyway, yeah. So everyone's everyone's interested in power, right? And Lady Philosophy says, so consider when you have power, what exactly do you have in your power? What do you have power over? If you should see a mouse seizing power and lording it over the other mice, how you would laugh. But if you consider only his body, what is weaker than a man who can be killed by the bites of insects or by worms finding their way into him? For who can force any law upon man except upon his body or upon his fortune, which is less than his body? Okay, so two things here. One, the the business about insects and worms is sort of a two-sided thing, right? On the one hand, it sort of suggests don't fool yourself, right? Just like the mouse is fooling itself, right? If you looked down and you saw a mouse that was lording it over the other mice, uh, one reason you would laugh at it, right, is because you know that you are way more powerful than the mouse, right? So if the mouse is like, I am the big deal, you must all bow down to me, you might laugh at it because as a big old human being, you could be like, whack, here, let me uh, let me put you in a glue trap and then we'll see my lordling mouse, right? Um, and she makes that same point, but it's not like God will smite you, right? Uh, it's no, the, like, it's laughable for you to be you know, boasting about how you're lording it over things because you could be killed by the bite of an insect or by a worm, right? So, I mean, like, let's not get too uppity here, right? Because what kind of power do you really have if uh, you can't even, you know, keep yourself from being killed by, you know, microbes? So, uh, so there's that. Um, uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, but but, but there's more than that, right? Um, that's kind of, I think, an undertone of what she's saying. The primary thing that she's saying is, um, let's kind of do it, do it backwards, starting from the end of this passage. If you have power over somebody, or again, to go back to what she asked first, if you have power over somebody, what do you have power over? Right? She's like, you can, you, who can force any law upon man except upon his body? Right? You can dominate the bodies of others, right? I can make, if I have power, if I'm in a position of power, I can make bad things happen to you, right? Like I could take you and have you beaten or imprisoned or something, right? But all I can control is your body. And the body is not much, right? It's what is weaker than a man that can be killed by the bites of insects or by worms finding their way into him? That's what the body is, right? So um, that's no great mastery, right? Um, or I can have power over your fortune. Right? again, if I have power over you, then I can take your money from you. And she's like, but we already talked about that, right? Money, wealth is even less important than your body, Right? Uh, the body is weak enough. Um, yes, exactly. Tom Hillman is remembering uh, Hamlet and the king going a progress through the guts of a beggar. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, power. In the end, like, yeah, it seems cool, but again, what do you really have power over? Nothing that really matters. Just people's weak, fragile bodies and their stuff, which is not even as important as their bodies, right? Um, yes, you can compel physical actions, but you can't compel the thoughts or ideas of others, Brian. That's exactly what she's saying. Okay, uh, what about fame? 
um, fame. The man who recklessly strives for glory and counts it his highest goal should consider the far-reaching shores of heaven and the narrow confines of earth. He will be ashamed of a growing reputation which still cannot fill so small a space. Why do proud men try in vain to throw this world's burden from their shoulders? Though their fame spread to remote lands and be sung by many voices, though their proud families acquire high honors, still death is contemptuous of such glory and treats the humble and proud in the same manner. Death equalizes the high and the low. Uh, this is the poem at the end of the fame section. The, the two central arguments about fame, right? Okay, so even if we accept that being famous is good, Right. Even if we accept that having a that the fact that other people have heard of you and say good things about you is a good thing, and even that lady philosophy doesn't even deal with very much because it's the weakest of all of the goods. Right. I mean, it's kind of easy to play the okay, but who cares game with that one. Right. Okay, so people are people are saying nice things about me after I'm dead. Woohoo! Right. Uh, you know, again, like wealth, we can argue about wealth, whether wealth is useful or not. Uh, but nobody argues that fame is useful in the same way that they argue that wealth is useful or power is useful, right? Um, so the argument about fame, we wouldn't even have to go there. The argument for fame chiefly is it's, it's not just that it's pointless, it's that it's pitiful, right? Um, what if you're famous, if you're world famous? That's the top, right? To be world famous. Well, so what's the world, right? Uh, did you notice the, the, uh, uh, piece of astronomical knowledge that Lady Philosophy drops earlier on, right, uh, in the prose part that proceeds, you know, in prose, uh, prose section seven, uh, compared to the size of the heavens, the earth uh, is the size of a, of, a, of, of a tiny point, which can be considered without dimensions, right? They knew how huge the heavens were. They knew that the fixed stars were really, really far away so far away that the dimensions of the earth were literally um, uh, negligible in comparison. Um, so the world in the, in the heavens, right, in the whole universe, the world is a teensy, literally insignificant speck. So say you're world famous. Okay, you're famous all over this one little speck of dirt in the middle of the heavens, Right? Congratulations. What have you accomplished? Not very much. Um, and, of course, um, uh, uh, yeah, oh, uh, Stephen asks, do I know a good medieval equivalent of an astronomy textbook? I sure do. Uh, Ptolemy's Almagest. That's what you want. A-L-M-A-G-E-S-T. Look up the Almagest by Ptolemy. That's the medieval astronomy textbook. Um, by the way, this section, the section on fame, is derived almost entirely uh, from uh, from Cicero's Dream of Scipio um, and from Macrobius's famous commentary on the Dream of Scipio. Um, but uh, the Dream of Scipio covers this stuff about fame very, very well. Um, and, and almost all of this stuff she's borrowing from this. By the way, Almost none of this stuff on the goods of fortune, the case studies of wealth and honors and power and fame, none of this stuff is original. Boethius is not laying, staking a claim to any of this. Um, philosophy here is trotting out very traditional moral teachings about all of this stuff. None of this is novel. Um, 
it's more like a refresher course for Boethius, you know, who's forgotten a bunch of things in his mental exile, right, uh, than it is to teach him new stuff. That's going to come later. For now, we're reviewing. And remember, the thing that we're reviewing is that the goods of fortune not only are, are, are subordinate goods, right, they're not only not the supreme good because they're losable, they're, they're really not worth much at all when you look at them carefully. Remember, that was her premise. And that's what she's showing, and she's showing it based on traditional teaching. Tony, exactly. It's all those certain books that she's carrying. That's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. I'm now willing to bet, Tony, that one of those books that she's carrying is uh, is uh, is The Dream of Scipio. Probably is. You know, it's got to be one of those books. Um, yeah, that's it. Um, so, but anyway, okay. So, so fame is limited not only in space, right? Again, even if you're, even if you're, you're, you're world famous, you know, famous over multiple continents. Seriously, like that's such a small percentage of all of the universe that, like, it's, 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 it's literally negligible. But it's also restricted in time, right? Death equalizes the high and the low. Doesn't matter how famous you are now, someday people are going to stop talking about you, right? It's not, you know, you, 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 you're, you're super famous right now, but you know, it's only going to be a few generations before no one will have heard of you. Um, so, and that's so with the with with the way that fame is necessarily by its nature circumscribed, both in space and in time. I mean, come on, how lame is it to ha- make fame your focus and what you really base your happiness on? Right, fame's just kind of pitiful. Okay, so now. Several of you, uh, you know, like Joyce, the question you were asking about wealth, which is a really great question. Um, you know, several of you might be thinking, you know, she's kind of shortchanging the gifts of fortune here. There, there is more to be said for wealth and for power and for even for fame than she's she's saying here, right? Uh, this doesn't seem quite fair. Again, these are traditional teachings, but you know, you could counter argue against some of these things. Right. Maybe maybe that's your reaction as you're going through. You're like, I'm not totally convinced. I'm not I'm not I'm not 100 percent ready to give up on these things because there's I think there's there's more to it. There's more to the desire for wealth than what she was describing in the wealth section. Um, Yes, you're right. If you're thinking that you're right. And again, here she's just reproducing what many people have said. She's recycled every bit of it. But wait, she's going to have more to say. She's going to come back in book three, and she's going to go through them all again. She's going to go back through wealth and power and honors and fame, uh, and she's going to take an even deeper look. Um, here she's just saying, when you look at the thing and what it is, and it's kind of vile and pointless, right? She's going to come back and ask some different questions and looking at them again, and then we'll see them in a very different light. Um, so, so again, kind of hang on, um, because what she's going to do with them when we get back to them in book three is brilliant. It is so good where she's going to go. I'm actually going to end here. I'm going to end a little early tonight, which I don't usually do. I know this um, uh, this session, of course, has gone kind of differently uh, than a lot of the uh, you know the Mythgard Academy sessions we've had. You know, it's hard when I'm when I'm, when I'm going through and just kind of trying to lay out. Uh, her argument and, and, and kind of draw attention to the, the overall shape of her argument to make sure that we're all tracking with Lady Philosophy uh, and looking at, you know, kind of what's behind it and the overall patterns here. It's different from just kind of talking about literature the way that we usually do. Um, 
I mean, you guys have made way fewer comments than you usually do, which is why we're done earlier. Uh, which is why I have ripped through what, like, uh, uh, I don't even know, what, 16, 17, uh, 17, yeah, you know, okay, 16. Uh, 16 uh, slides, and I'm done early, right? Um, but uh, but I want to I wanna stop here because this is a good place to start. We're not quite, f- a good place to stop. We're not quite finished with book two. Um, but I want to I want to do the end of book two next time and then segue uh, into into book three, um, and uh, I, and I'm just kind of feeling like we've reached we've reached a good saturation point with book two, uh, and I kind of I kind of want to stop here. Um, so uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's different, right? I mean, th- this is going to be different, and it is one of the things that I was thinking that maybe we would. Uh, uh, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd maybe be a little bit shorter. Um, but, uh, okay. So a few more things to look, I mean, I, I want to look at, uh, where she, where, so, so, you know, go back and look at, look at the end of book two again. Um, you know, after she finishes the case study, right, she goes through all the different, uh, goods of fortune. Look at how she wraps things up. Where, where does she bring things at the end of book two? And then going into book three, do read book three for next time. We're not going to get to the very end of book three, but um, we're going we're gonna to get into doing a lot of book three. Book three is where the consolation of philosophy really takes off. Book three is when we really start getting Boethius doing his thing, right? Um, you know, we had establishing the terms of the complaint and what the dilemma is in book one. In book two, we had to sort of Again, not lay the foundation, but kind of tear down the foundation, right? We had to sort of say, let's let's kind of question some of our assumptions about how things work and how things should work, and 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 let's kind of not take so many things for granted, Mister Boethius, right? And then now we're ready to move forward and to and to actually build positive things and to start coming back to some of those questions. In book three, we're going to end up with answers uh, t- for the correct answers to at least two out of the three questions that he got wrong at the, the three diagnostic questions she asked at the end of book one. Um, we're going to, she's hinted at the answer to the first one. Remember he had said, um, uh, when she said, what are you, right? Define what a man is. And he said, a, a rational mortal animal, right? And she was like, and is that it? And he's like, yeah, of course that's it. Right? And she's like, okay, you don't know what you are, right? That's that's the problem. So, what is he really? What is? How do you define man really? Um, she's already given some hints about that. Remember, even in her definition of true happiness, uh, right, and its connection with uh, with rational beings, she's she's already pointing to it. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So see, uh, d- don't say I never. Uh, uh, it, it finished early, right? It's uh, it's unprecedented, but here you go. So, thanks everybody for joining me. Thanks for um, um, uh, thanks for um, coming along with me. Uh, I hope that uh, I've, you know, uh, you know, my goal is to to sort of make the the the, the train of argument uh, as clear as I can. If I'm belaboring things too much, I apologize for that. Um, but, uh, I thank you guys for coming along with me and being patient with me. Uh, and I look forward to continuing our discussion as we, uh, as we launch on into, uh, stronger remedies, uh, next week. So thanks very much, everybody. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now.